All right. Well, good morning, everybody. God bless you, and welcome to Calvary Napa. I am Pastor Rob, and uh, if you're visiting with us for a first time today, we'd just like to extend to you a very special welcome. As Pastor Dan has already said, we're so glad that you chose to come and worship the Lord with us today, and uh, excited about what the Lord is going to do as we get into His Word. Amen? Hallelujah. I don't think I had any announcements to add to that, except for just want to piggyback on the children's ministry thing. Yeah, the need is real, and we have some very sacrificial servants back there, uh, but we don't want to sacrifice them on the altar of children's ministry. We don't want to burn them alive, you know, and so the more people that are willing to jump in and help out, I'm telling you, it would go a very long way, and so we want to see our people using their gifts, amen? And if the need is so real out there, what that tells us is that there are people who are not using their gifts. And so, uh, man, I just want to encourage you guys, um, seriously, get in, get in the game and love on those children. And that's, what it's, that's all, it, all it is, loving the kids. Amen? It's easy to love them when you can just go in there, love them, and then drop them off with the parents. It's kind of like grandparent status, you know what I mean? You're not, so, you know, just kind of look at it that way. And so, it's a, anyways, it's a blessing. So, um, just want to thank the people who are serving. I want to thank you so much, all of our volunteers who are serving in a host of different ways. I'm blessed as the pastor here. I really am. Um, I, I have other pastor friends, and I see the kinds of things that they're having to do on top of just the regular pastoral duties. And I just think, man, I am blessed. God has really blessed our church with many volunteers who are uh, deeply committed and faithful in, in the areas that they have uh, given themselves to serve in. And, man, I'm blessed. We're blessed. And so I just want to thank you, all of our ministry leaders, all of our volunteers who are faithfully serving in all the different capacities around the church. Amen? You know, from my heart to yours as the pastor here and the rest of the, the pastors, we're grateful for you. So to God be the glory. All right, so a couple things. We're back in the Gospel of John today, and so I'm uh, very excited. It's been about a four-month detour, and so I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be back in the Gospel of John, and we'll be picking up in chapter 6, verse 1. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me there. I also want to say that um, I am determined as of this day moving forward, I'm going to cut my sermons down in length. Um, a mercy, I, you know, I just appreciate you guys. Y'all have really persevered, and I've just been so convicted, and I'm like, I've got to do this somehow, some way. And so uh, my, my goal today is 40 minutes. How's that sound? 40 minutes. So I got my stopwatch, and so let's do this thing. Amen? So I'm experimenting. I had to cut my notes way down here, and so this is a total experiment for me. But I'm trusting that it'll be, a, it'll be a blessing. And so with that, let's rock, all right? Okay, well today as we get back into the Gospel of John, we are looking at the feeding of the 5,000. That's a story that is probably familiar to all of us in this room. Even if you aren't a Christian and you haven't really studied the Bible at all, I'm sure you have probably heard of this story. Uh, it's, it's very well known. And John, as he is recounting this story for us, he, um, he uses the word signs. You know, there are various signs that Jesus performs as he uh, is ministering and teaching and preaching. 
And John tells us that he, he wrote this gospel and he selected these particular signs so that hearing in these things, reading these things, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God, and in believing we would have eternal life. It says that in John chapter 20. It's the purpose statement of the book. And so when Jesus does these miraculous things, they are called signs. And the reason they're called signs is because they communicate something. It points to something. When we see a red sign that says STOP on it, we know what that means, right? It means stop. Not necessarily in California. California, it means something else. Just kind of ooze through, right? I appreciate that. I love to just ooze through the intersections. Uh, just kidding. I would never do such a thing, at least if there are police in the vicinity. And so, you know, signs are important. They mean something. They communicate something. And so all of these, these miracles or signs that are in the Gospel of John are given to us for that very purpose, to bolster our faith, to bolster our faith, to bring us to a place of faith and believing, and then to strengthen our faith as we walk through this Christian life, this Christian journey. And so signs... Uh, I think it's important for us to recognize, especially in kind of the day and age that we're in within Christianity and church, is that not every extraordinary thing that happens is miraculous. Uh, we have really watered down the word miracle. For instance, should you go over to the Bel Air parking lot over there, you know, midday when it's super packed and there is an open spot there? What is that? That's a miracle, baby, right? Well, it's not a miracle. It's just, it's not. That might be God's grace for sure. Maybe he's just, his face is shining down upon you that day, and he just worked things out in such a way that you got there just on time to get that parking spot. I'm not going to take away from that, but that's not, that's not a miracle. You know, a miracle is when uh, the laws of nature are suspended or, or, or broken even, when Jesus is able to walk on water uh, or turn, you know, water into wine, or when Moses was able to part the Red Sea, those types of things, those are miraculous, okay? And so those are what the Bible calls signs. And usually those signs are given to kind of validate or verify that the person speaking and teaching is God's man. Such was the case with Moses and the prophets and uh, Jesus and the apostles. And so that, that's, that's the idea here. God did these amazing signs through Jesus Christ to show that He is who He claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And He worked in all of those kinds of powers. So miracles, the miraculous signs, they weren't performed arbitrarily. You know, it wasn't just to wow people. It wasn't just for the fun of it. It wasn't just because He could, right? And so... I went to uh, Mendocino a couple weeks ago uh, with my wife, and it was like a little pastoral getaway uh, place. And so we were in a house, and there was a house next to us, and it was an a, a elder, a pastor, and his wife. And they go to a church where, I mean, man, they, they really, I could tell right away, they put a huge emphasis on, you know, miracles, the miraculous signs and, and wonders and things like that. And uh, it was funny because the first thing he did when he introduced himself to us, he was like, you know, I was just praying this morning, Lord, is there something you would want us to share with this pastor and his wife? And he shared a verse with us from Psalms about how someone was laying a net for David's feet, a trap. 
and he was going to, but it was okay because he was going to be justified because he was innocent. And I'm like, what in the world kind of encouragement is this? Someone's setting a trap for us. And, uh, and then he was like, and this is the year of miracles. There's going to be miracles in your church, healings galore. And I'm just like, what in the world is this? He's like, I just want to see miracles. And I'm thinking, you know, why? Like, I get it, man. We, we, I mean, let's just be real. We would love to see some crazy, miraculous stuff, right? Um, and believe me, I, if someone is sick, I want to see them be healed. Can God heal somebody? Can he? Absolutely he can. Does God heal people uh, when it's, you know, according to his own sovereign, you know, prerogative? Yes, he does. And so praise God for that. But I would submit to you that if we started seeing like signs and miracles and stuff happen in the church, that could be one of the worst things that I think could happen for a church because then everybody's just going to be fanatical about seeing more signs of wonders. And instead of coming to exalt Christ, they want to see more, more miracles and signs and stuff. And so I think that that's what's going on in this text, and that's something that we have to watch out for, especially in the day and age we live in because a lot of churches out there that is what they are looking for. That's what they are always pushing for. They're always talking about signs and wonders and miracles and things like that. we got to watch out for that, you know. What we need to really be looking for is Jesus Christ, amen? We need to really be focusing on him, worshiping him, sharing his love with other people, receiving his love, walking in obedience, being sanctified. You know, that's, that's the thing that we need to focus on. And that's, you know, we're going to see that kind of thing really come out in this, in this message, we're going to see the issue with people who are just chasing after signs, and they want to see miracles, and we're going to see that Jesus is going to lovingly correct them, and he's going to try to, he's going to, try to get their thinking where it ought to be. And so, make no mistake, Jesus did many signs, many wonders, uh, many, many miracles, and there are seven in particular that are listed for us in the gospel, seven in particular. And the one that we are looking at today is very significant because it's recorded in all four gospels. It's the only miracle that I, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken here, I believe it's the only miracle that is in all four gospels except for what other, what other, what other sign is in all four gospels except for the feeding of the 5,000? The resurrection, amen, very good, all right, good job. And so this is significant, it's recorded in all four Gospels, and you know, Jesus did perform all kinds of signs, various kinds of signs. He exercised power over the demonic realm, he was able to cast out demons, he was able to, uh, as I said, calm the raging sea and walk on the water, he was able to exercise power over disease, over leprosy, uh, over things of that, that sort. And he was even able to exercise power over death itself. He was able to raise people from the dead back to life. And so we, saw, we see all kinds of wonderful signs that Jesus would perform. But today, we're looking at what you might call a creative sign. A creative sign. And so this is, I guess, in some ways akin to, you know, turning the, the water into wine. It's taking God's creation, God's good creation, and manipulating it, if you will, taking these five loaves and two fish and then feeding thousands and thousands of people. It's extraordinary. And that is what we will be looking at today. Now, chapter 6, as we look at chapter 6, it's a very long chapter. 
It's like 71, 72 verses, longest chapter in John. And it's one long running event. And so this really just kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen throughout the entire chapter, which we will look at in about four or five sermons as we work our way through John chapter 6. And so what is happening today is going to set the stage for everything that's going to follow through the rest of this chapter. So this is a very important part of the chapter as it sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. In this chapter, we see the first of the seven I am statements. You familiar with those? What are some of the I am statements? What's that? The bread of life. Okay, that's the one we're going to be looking at in chapter 6. What else? Light of the world. Very good. What else? That's a good guess, but that's in Revelation. Good guess, though, my sister. What else? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Very good. Anybody else? Huh? Well, that's good. That's a really good guess, um, but that's not one of the I am statements. That's really good, though, and I'm excited to get to that text. How about I am the door? That's another one. I am the good shepherd. That's another one. Uh, I am the vine. That's another one. And so those are the, the I am statements, and I don't want to get too deep into that right now. We'll, we'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. But this, uh, this little scenario right here of feeding the 5,000 is what is going to set the stage for Jesus to go off into this I am the bread of life, which I would say is really like the crux of this whole chapter. So again, very important. He's going to do something physical here that's going to lead to something very spiritual. And so this text that we are looking at today is very, very multifaceted. Man, there are so many things going on in this text, in this chapter, but in this text that it boggles the mind. You know, the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus in love is concerned with a very real human need. I mean, it's as simple as that. Jesus sees a need, a human need, he's concerned about it, and he does something about it. We see that Jesus is testing his disciples. He's, you know what, I think sometimes this is lost on us, but you know what Jesus is doing with his disciples throughout the Gospels? He's discipling them. You know, he's discipling his disciples. They are becoming the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we get a great picture of how Jesus went about doing that. And it's good for us to recognize that we are being discipled and that we are also to be discipling others. And so Jesus is testing and stretching the faith of his disciples. He's discipling them. As I've said before, Jesus is setting the stage for a deeper spiritual truth and he's going to expose unbelief in the crowd. That's, that's all part of this. Jesus is demonstrating his power as the Son of God. Jesus is advancing his mission as the Messiah. And Jesus is demonstrating his sovereignty over all of this. And that's probably one of the biggest takeaways of chapter 6. And we will look at that over and over again as we work our way through. So there's a lot going on here. It's such a rich text. One of the richest chapters in the Bible. I love chapter 6 of John. Amen? And I'm excited to work, uh, walk through this with you guys. So today, of all of these things that I've mentioned, there's one thing in particular that I want to focus in on. I want us to zoom in and consider, and that is the way that Jesus tests the faith of his disciples. As we walk through this little text, verses 1 through 13, 
That's what we're going to look at today and really consider is how Jesus tests the faith of his disciples. Sound good? So with that, let me just offer up a word of prayer and we'll start digging into these verses. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. You indeed are so kind to us and we praise you. We give you honor and glory. And I ask as we get into your word now that you would open our eyes and our hearts and that you would minister to us. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to be touched by your wonderful grace yet again. We need to be refreshed by your spirit, and we need to be challenged and exhorted from your word. And we need the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to live these things out. So God, you know all the needs that, are, that I have walked through the door today, and you're able to speak to all the hearts and minds here by your sufficient word. And so, Father, we pray that you would have your way here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first thing we see as we look at verses 1 through 4 is that Jesus sees a need and sets the stage for a lesson in faith. Jesus sees a need and sets the stage for a lesson in faith. Verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Okay, so we're told, after these things, verse 1 opens up with that. Now, chapter 5, there was this uh, discourse where Jesus was pointing to all of the things that really validated him as the Son of God, all the various witnesses, the witness of the Scriptures, the witness of John, the witness of Moses, the witness of the Father, and then, as that chapter concludes, chapter 6 opens up and says, after these things. Now, you would think that that was just, you know, right away. But actually, it's probable that there was at least 6 to 12 months that passed between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Because they were at a feast, uh, they were at some feast in chapter 5, it doesn't specify. And depending on what feast that was, we now know that they are at the Feast of Passover, so it could be six months later or 12 months later. And that's significant because by this point, Jesus is wildly popular. He's been preaching and teaching and doing miracles, and now the multitudes are going after him. They've seen the things he's done. They've, they've heard the things he's done, and now they are chasing after Jesus. And they were following him because of the signs they saw the signs, they heard the signs, and they wanted to see more of these signs. Now, look, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to be hard on these people. I would, I would want to see that stuff too, really. If, if Jesus was, was around and I'm hearing about this kind of stuff, you best believe I'm going to want to see, see him do that stuff, you know. And so I, I'm not trying to elevate myself or us over these folks. We would be probably in the same boat. But what we know is, is that they were really a fickle crowd. I mean, they wanted to see the signs, but when, they're, when they got challenged with Jesus' words, they were out. Because we will see by the end of this chapter that all of these people, they leave. They leave Jesus. After the end of this chapter, Jesus says some very hard things, and the people say, this is too much. I can't, I can't deal with this. We're out. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to go now too? Like, here's, your, here's your opportunity. And so we see that this crowd... They don't really want Jesus. They just want magic tricks. They want to see more. 
more signs. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this, which is amazing to me. And so when we look at the other accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it helps us to really set the stage uh, in, a, in a fuller way of what's going on here. So we know John the Baptist had just been killed. He was beheaded uh, by Herod. Herod had him beheaded. And <clears throat> word reached Jesus, and Jesus undoubtedly was uh, grieved deeply over this. So he, we're told, he went to an isolated place to retreat. He just kind of had to get away. He had to get away. Well, he had already sent his disciples out on this epic missionary journey, and they were given power to heal and to do signs and wonders and to preach the gospel. And they come back just about that same time, we're told, in Mark, I believe it is. <clears throat> and we're told that they were exhausted. It was crazy busy. They didn't even have time to eat. So they were probably hangry. I mean, it was just kind of all bad. So Jesus said, look, you can come away with me. We need, to, <clears throat> we need to get away and kind of retreat and, you know, be re refueled, if you will. And so that, that was what was happening when all of a sudden this crowd approaches. And so Jesus is kind of over it, it would seem. The disciples are, <clears throat> excuse me, probably over it by this point, I would imagine. And then enters this massive crowd of sign seekers. And so if I were Jesus and I saw that, I would probably think, man, y'all get out of here, all right? Just can I get a minute, please? You know, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't do that. It's amazing to me. Mark chapter 6 tells us in verse 34, it says, And Jesus, when he came out, he saw the great multitude, and he was moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. In Matthew 14, 14, it says, And when Jesus went out and saw the great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed the sick. So Jesus sees the crowd coming. He is moved. I mean, this is gut-level compassion. That's what that word is. I mean, it moved him in his inmost, innermost being. And so he went out and he began to heal the sick and to teach and to preach. And that just blows me away. I love that about Jesus. Don't you? Jesus had a bleeding heart for people. People that he knew at the end of this, you know, this chapter, if you will, we're going we're gonna to walk away. They're going to turn away. And he's healing them anyways. He's healing the sick. He's teaching. That's God's grace on these people going forward. And that's the love. That is the heart of our Savior. He cares about the needs of these people. We're going to see that as he moves forward to actually feed the folks. He cares about the hurting, the sick, the weary. He cares about the people who are deceived and have been handed a bill of lies by the Pharisees and were given this false religious system that was actually keeping them away from God. Jesus was concerned about those things. And he loved these people at his own expense. That was his life. It was very sacrificial like that. The love of God, it's amazing. The love of our Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that what draws us to repentance as we sang in that song? I mean, that, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what it's all about. You know, I, I, I struggle because, you know, there, there's a saying, some people are just in touch with their depravity. Like, they just know that, that they 
are terrible, I guess. I don't know how, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're just always like, woe is me. I'm horrible and God is glorious, right? And I, I feel like I can come across that way in the pulpit all the time. I'm, you know, I, I'm horrible and God is glorious. We are terrible and God is great. And my wife last week, she said to me, she said, Pastor, I need to hear that God loves me. And I was like, oh, you know, that's the truth. She does. I need, I need to remind myself of that regularly, and you need to be reminded of that regularly. Our Savior loves us. Jesus loves you right now, where you sit, whatever is going on in your life, whatever struggles you're experiencing, whatever kind of failures or doubts or fears or needs that you might be going through right now, Jesus loves you. God loves you, and he is committed to you. He cares for you. He has a heart of compassion as our great, faithful, sympathetic high priest. Amen? Jesus loved these people. He came to, to lay down his life as a sacrifice. He came to serve these folks. He came to minister to their needs. And Jesus cared about temporal, physical needs. Sometimes we may think, you know, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about these little issues of mine. But he does. He does. We're told that we should cast our cares upon Jesus. Why? Because he cares for us. Because he cares. We have a compassionate, praise him, we have a compassionate, loving, faithful, caring shepherd. Amen and hallelujah. Thank you, God, for that. And so we see this in our Savior, and we'll see that more even as we go. And so this leads us to the next point. <clears throat> now the stage has kind of been set, or it's being set, and Jesus is going to test his disciples a little bit. Jesus is going to test his disciples a little bit. Verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread? that these may eat. But this he said to test him, to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone may have a little. So Jesus sees this crowd. He begins to minister to them and to teach and to preach throughout the duration of the day. Now it's getting, getting late in the day, and we're told in the other Gospels that the disciples just wanted to send the crowd away because they recognized that the need was great. It was greater than they could meet. They couldn't do anything about it. So like, Jesus, we need to send these guys, send these folks away so that they can go into a nearby town and find food and, and eat, right? That seems reasonable enough. But Jesus tests them, and he says... You know, where should, we, uh, where should we buy bread, Philip? What do you think? Now, people have asked, why would he ask Philip this? Why, why Philip? And so what we know is, is that they're in Bethsaida. I think Luke tells us that. And that's Philip's hometown. This is Philip's stomping ground. So this is the guy with the resources. He knows. He knows where to go. And Philip's, uh, Jesus is like, hey, Philip, where should we go? Or he didn't say, yeah, he's like, where, where should we go? You know, where are we going to get food from, Philip? And Philip says 200 denarii is not enough to feed all these people, even a little bit. And that's about eight months' wages. I'm not really sure where he came up with that number or if that's just kind of an arbitrary, like, large amount. But 
Philip says, look, eight months' wages is not enough for every person here to get a bite, really. And he was like, so this is kind of a, this is kind of a pointless, hopeless situation. Now, Philip answered a question that Jesus did not ask. He didn't say, how much would it cost for us to feed everybody here? He simply said, where are we going to get the food? Where, where are we going to get the bread? Now, Philip's totally lost here. Totally, this, is, he, this is lost on him. He's being tested. He doesn't know it. I would say he fails the test, and he starts trying to appeal to his own logic and reasoning, and he's trying to consider the, the resources and things that, that are available and he, it's totally lost on him. Now, I think the right answer would have been, the correct answer would have been, Jesus, I don't know, you tell me. You're the, you're the, the Lord. I mean, you're the one that can turn water into wine. You talk, why are you asking me? Do your thing, Jesus. Like, you know, hook them up. What you think I'm, I'm going to do about this situation, right? And so, you know, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, I love those verses. It says that we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean, what? Not on our own understanding. We are not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we are to acknowledge Him, and He will guide our paths. He will direct our steps. He'll take care of us. The problem is, is that we are very prone to look into our own resources, our own wisdom, our own wherewithal. Jesus is testing them, and I would say He failed. He was leaning. He was leaning. We need to stop leaning, folks. You know what I mean? We need to start leaning on Jesus and stop leaning so much on our own wisdom and resources and wherewithal. He failed the test. You know, Jesus said where, not how much. And so Jesus wasn't lost on what to do. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And so he's testing them. And this is where I really want, if you get anything, let's, let's reel it in and focus in right here. Jesus is testing his disciples. Testing is a major part of the Christian life. It's major. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this, what testing is, what testing isn't. But I don't know if we realize this. If someone were to ask you this, you might say, yeah, I, get, I, I, I know that, I believe that. But I don't know how much we actually live our lives like this. We are constantly being tested. I mean, every day. Constant test. We are being tested. It's kind of like, you know, if, if, if you're learning math, you're going to be given a test to show, to demonstrate, are you actually learning it? Well, you sit in these, these chairs week in and week out, and you hear the Bible stuff that's going forward. God's going to test you and give you opportunities to demonstrate that you've really got this. And He's going to keep testing you, and He's going to keep testing you, and He's going to test you in deeper and more profound ways. And there's a lot of different things that are happening when we're being tested, and we'll, t we'll talk about that, but... The first distinction I want to make is God tests, but Satan tempts. You got that? God tests, and Satan tempts, and they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Now, we see Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness there in those 40 days, and he's tempting Jesus so that he would fail and fall and disqualify himself. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, when the devil had ended the temptation, this is in verse 13, it says, He departed from him until an opportune time. 
That's, that's an interesting little verse right there. Now, Satan, his goal, his objective was to disqualify Jesus from the mission that he was on. And so he was working overtime to try to trip Jesus up and to tempt him to fail and to falter. And when he saw that he wasn't going to be able to do that, did he just give up? Did he say, okay, we're done here. Clearly, I'm no match for this guy. No, in verse 13, it says that he departed from him until an opportune time. So we have an enemy who is seeking to tempt us, to take us out. And he doesn't just do it once or twice or three times and give up. He is seeking to tempt us throughout our whole lives as Christians. And he looks for and waits for opportune times to do this. He's crafty. He knows us. He's studied mankind for thousands of years. And so this is serious business, and it's something that we have to be mindful about, folks. We have an enemy of our soul who hates God and hates us. If you're a Christian, you've got a bullseye on your back, and we are being tempted daily with various temptations, whether it's doubt, whether it is uh, sinful temptations of the, of the mind, of, in, in our speech, in our, in our actions, given to various lusts, whatever it may be, listening to certain things, saying certain things, lashing out, whatever the case may be, the enemy knows and appeals to each and every one of us according to our own weaknesses. And he knows what they are. And so that's a scary thing, but it's something that we got to be very aware of and realize that you know, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? But there is temptation, and it is real, and we have to fight that. We have to fight that by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. We have to do that. we got to fight that. But that's not what we're talking about here. And to be clear, God never tempts us. Do you know that? God does not tempt us. Satan tempts us by appealing to our sinful desires, but God does not. In James chapter 1, it says, let no one, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So there it is. We are tempted in accordance with our own sinful desires. And we are drawn away and we are enticed. And Satan does appeal to those things. But God does not do that. Okay, God is not actively seeking to tempt us, to test us in that way. And so let us never say that is the case with God. For here he says God cannot be uh, tempted and he does not tempt. Amen? Because he's good. God loves us. He's for us. His desire is to strengthen us, to build us up, to stretch us out, to grow us, to conform us into the image of His glorious Son. So He's not actively trying to tempt us to fall or fail. Amen? Praise God for that. Now, what God does do is He tests us, and this is something different. And He tests us. Really, there's two different goals, end goals for testing, if you will. One is to mature us, to grow us, and the other is really to reveal you know, authenticity. He will show us things about us. And they're ugly, right? And it can be discouraging. But God's goal is not to discourage us or frustrate us or, or you know, anything like that. It's to reveal things in us so that He can grow us beyond that place. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, "'My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials.'" knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
So God intends to test us to produce something good in us. It, it comes through difficulty. If, if our Christian lives were nothing but just smooth sailing all the way, we would never grow. And we understand this. That's the way it is with exercise and fitness. It's the same kind of principle. We do not want to experience hardships, do we? I don't want to be tested. Let's just be real. We don't like that. And so we pray our way out of it. God, you know, get me out of this. This difficult thing that's in front of me right now, it's on to get it off me. We, we want to get out of that and get back into a place of comfort and ease. We somehow think that we are peacetime Christians. We don't have an enemy. We're not in a war. God is not trying to stretch us out and grow us. Let's just kick back and have ease. You know, that's the way it's going to be in glory, but that ain't here. That ain't now. And so we, we kind of have to stop thinking like that, right? We got to recognize God is working in us. He is trying to grow us and strengthen us and produce faith and trust in us and Christ-likeness in us, and He uses difficulty to do it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is purification. This is authenticity. God turns up the fire. He turns up the heat. He reveals what's really in there. When your uh, cup gets tipped, what's inside comes out, right? And God does that. He turns up the friction. He turns up the heat. He stretches us out. What's really in there is exposed, And then when we see that and we are grieved by it and we repent of it and we agonize over it, God, please help me, God will refine those things and he will remove that dross off the top. And what is left over is pure. And it's to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen? And so God is actively working in us. Jesus was testing his disciples to this very end. He was trying to strengthen his disciples' faith so that... So that Philip would say, Jesus, you're faithful, you're good, you're God's son, you have all resources and abilities, you, what, you tell me. And, I, you know? and so that's where Jesus was trying to bring them. Jesus was testing them. Jesus was testing them. And we are being tested. So can I just say, pass the test, folks. Let's pass the test. And I, I don't mean to minimize the difficulty of our tests, because they're real. And I fail tests all the time. But we need to have this mindset We need to recognize that the Christian life is constant testing. So whatever, you're all going through something right now. I don't, some of you I know what it is. Many of you I don't know, but you know. And instead of seeing it as some kind of a plague or some kind of like, you know, God's mad at me or God doesn't love me or whatever, I need to get out from underneath this or, you know, stop and consider what is Jesus trying to show you here? What is it that Jesus is trying to bring to the top in you? What is it that Jesus is trying to grow you to the point where you can overcome these things and you can respond with Christ-like character, that you can actually do the things that the Bible says to do? The Bible says we're supposed to love our enemies. When's the last time we loved our enemies in here? That is not easy. We romanticize that. Amen. Love our enemies until, until something happens. And then we're like, no, sir, I cannot, you know. And so we have to realize that God is going to put these kinds of things in our lives so that 
we can actually be tested. Can, are you doing it? How are you doing? And, and so you all know where you're at and what, what's going on there. And so I just want to say tested faith is growing faith. God knows that. That's by His design. And so He's testing us always. So let's pass the test, amen, by God's grace. That was Jesus' goal, to reveal to them where they were actually at and to take them beyond. And so we see that moving on in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So we are told in Mark that Jesus sent the disciples out into the crowd to find what resources might be available. Uh, P, uh, Andrew shows up and says, Well, we got this kid here that's got the, these, uh, these you know, loaves and, and fish. Now, this is not loaves of bread. These would be like little pita bread things, essentially. Sometimes they're even referred to as crackers, like flat bread. And they were barley, which was pretty gnarly. It was not good. Barley's gnarly. And so it's, uh, it's gross. And these fish are more like sardines, and they're pickled, I think is what, uh, what one, one uh, Greek rendering of it is. It's, just, it's gross, you know. And so here it is. This is what we got. And, uh, and Andrew's right, man. What in the world is this going to do? And so, again, I think here's a test. Andrew didn't, didn't pass. He's like, here it is, but this, ain't gonna, this can't do anything. You know, Jesus could take water and turn it into wine. You know, that's easy enough, I guess. But he can't do anything with this. This is nothing. You see? You see the test? And so, can Jesus take a little and do a lot with it? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. That's, that's really our hope because we, we know our resources are small. Typically, we think, I don't have much to offer I, you know, I'm struggling financially. What little bit I'm able to give to the Lord, that can't go very far. Or I'm not particularly talented, or I don't have any, you know, I don't have a gift like that person, that guy, or that girl over there. So I'm just not going to do anything. I don't have much time. I only have a small amount of time, and that, that's just not really, God can't do much with that. You, you see the issue there? What you're saying is Jesus can't take that little bit and do something spectacular with it. And so we have to know Jesus cares, he loves, Jesus stretches, he tests, he grows us. Jesus can take a little and do a lot with it. Jesus can do incredible things. And so it's all about trusting those things in Christ. And then we're going to see here in the last point that Jesus doesn't just say, you failed. You failed. Shame on you. He's going he's gonna to show them, he's going to strengthen them, and he's going to involve them in the process. I love that. Verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. And now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number, about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples uh, to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So now Jesus instructs the disciples to instruct the people, take all of these, ver all these people and sit them down in the grass in, in groups. And so we're told that there were 5,000 men here um, in, in one of the other Gospels, I think Mark. And so this is, that's not counting women and children. So I've heard estimates of 
10 to 15, 20, 25,000 people possibly in this group, but it's much larger than 5,000. And so they sit them down orderly in groups, and uh, Jesus begins to use the disciples. So he takes this, these little flatbread, pita, bar, gnarly barley loaves and the sardines, and all of a sudden he just starts miraculously, uh, I don't know what you even call it, you know, just it's, he begins to distribute more and more and more. It's hard for me in my mind to even picture what that would look like. It's, it's incredible. And so um, Jesus gave thanks for the food, distributed it, and it says there that it was as much as the people wanted. Remember what uh, Philip said, not even enough for everybody to have a little. Here, though, we see that it was as much as the people wanted. Look at verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So the people ate until they were absolutely filled. This is incredible. He took that little snack, that little lunch from this little kid, and fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people until they were stuffed full. That's amazing. And then Jesus instructed the disciples to gather the remaining fragments. And they did so, and there were 12 baskets left over. Now, people make try to figure out what is the significance of this. I would suggest that it's just a basket, a basket for each of the disciples. Jesus shows them in a very striking way what he's just done. Your faith was very small. You had no faith in what I was able to do. You saw this tiny little snack. You saw the multitude of people. You were involved in the process of feeding them. And now each and every one of you has a whole basket left for yourself. And they, that's something they will not soon forget. He, he, he demonstrated to them his abilities, his faithfulness, his concern, his care for this crowd, his concern, his care for their faith that it would be strengthened, his love for them. You know, Jesus does that. He takes us through life lessons. He teaches us experientially. He teaches us through testing and through failures. That's the good, good news. He will retest us. If you're failing the test, don't worry. You will get a retest. And so keep that in mind. And so that's how we get it. We get it experientially. It's one thing to know it and to be able to verbalize something. It's another thing to be able to live it out. And that's Jesus' goal is to, to teach us his faithfulness experientially, to test us, to stretch us to the point where we are mature, that we are literally actually walking in Christ's likeness, looking like our Savior, trusting his faithfulness. Amen? Jesus allows us to fail and then shows himself faithful over and over again. And I love that about our Savior. He loves us. And so he's not condemning us when we fail. He's not saying you blew it and I knew you would. That's not his disposition towards us at all. It's let, let me help you up. Let me teach you of my faithfulness and let me walk you through it again. Isn't that glorious? That's how Jesus is going about making us into his image. And you know, it's amazing to me the kinds of stuff people come up with to try to do away with this. And I'm going to kind of close on this point. Some people have said, well, what's, what actually happened here is that <clears throat> there was plenty of food. Everybody had food, but they were selfish and they didn't want to share. 
And so this little kid came up, <clears throat> and he had his little, his little snack, and he was willing to share it with the crowd. The whole crowd was so moved by the generosity of this young kid that, wouldn't you know it, they had their food, but it, they had it hidden in their robes, and they pull it out. And it turned out to be this overabundance of food. It was more than the crowd needed, and there were baskets left over as a result. Isn't that glorious? You know, isn't that special? People, they will do anything to come up with a way to make the Scripture say something other than what it actually says. Right? And so we got to watch out for that. I heard one person talking about David and Goliath. It was actually a TED Talk. I don't know why this guy was talking about this on a TED Talk. But he said that Goliath actually probably had some kind of a, um, a physical disorder. He could name it. And because he was so big, it actually made him crippled. So he was actually crippled and could barely hobble out there onto the battlefield. But David, however, if you knew how to use a sling like that, that made you the equivalent of modern day special forces. And so there was nothing, spe in fact, this was, you know, poor Goliath. That wasn't even a fair fight. That was not a fair matchup. David, that was wrong. That was dirty of him. You see what I'm saying? Like people will come up with the, <clears throat> the, the Red Sea. I don't know if you know this, but the Red Sea where Moses took the people through the Red Sea, that was not, it was the Reed Sea. And it was not that, it was another, it was another body of water nearby called the Reed Sea. But the thing is, it was more like a marsh. It was like ankle deep water. And so that's why they were able to traverse that water which to me is even more amazing because God was able to drown the entire Egyptian army in ankle-deep water. So, you know, I mean, it just doesn't work. Bottom line, do we believe God's Word? You know, if you can get past verse number one in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you can, you can believe the rest of the Bible. Amen? And so even in this day and age, we're tested. Is God's Word to be trusted? Is God's word to be obeyed? Can we believe it when it says things that are hard for us to believe? That's just a testimony to a big God. He's amazing. That's our Savior. He really is the Son of God. He really did live a life here on this earth. He really did live a perfectly sinless life that none of us could live. He really did die a sinner's death and, and took God's holy wrath on himself there on the cross for us. He really did die he really did rise again from the grave. He laid his life down. He took it back up. He really was seen by many people there, and he really did ascend into heaven. He really is going to return, just as the Word of God says. We can believe that. You must believe that. There's no other hope for us if we don't believe that, because we are all, as we know, we were at one point in time separated from God. A good and a holy God we were separated from, yet in love, because God so loved the world, he paid the price that we could not pay. He took the penalty upon himself. He gave his son. His son took the penalty upon himself for us, for our sin. God's wrath was poured out on him there in our place. And when Jesus rose from the grave, that was the demonstration that he is exactly who he said he was that he can and will do exactly what he said he would do, and that is to bring salvation and forgiveness to an untold multitude. Praise Christ. He's worthy. So if you don't know him today, if you haven't trusted Christ for salvation, then you will have to account, account for and stand before God one day. We know this, all of us in here, whether it was before we trusted Christ or maybe even to this very moment you haven't trusted Christ, you know 
If you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't received God's forgiveness, if you have to stand before him today, it's not good. It's all bad. It's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. But God's love is so good, it is so big, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Amen? He sent his son to die. So call upon his name. Say, Jesus, I believe you. I love you. I need you. I know you love me. You died for me. I don't understand all of this right now. I'm going to spend the rest of my life working it out, figuring it out. But I want to follow you. I believe you. You're the son of God. You rose from the grave. You took my sins. I want to follow you. Believe that. Amen? Amen. See, believe that. That's why the gospel of John was given to us. That's what we must believe above all other things. Amen? We must believe that. And that's where it begins. So have faith. Have faith in God. Have faith in His Son. Let Jesus stretch your faith. Amen? Pass the test. Pass the test. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise your holy name. We give you honor and glory. Thank you that you are committed to growing us, to testing us, to sanctifying and shaping us. Thank you that you saved us, Lord. And I just pray for anyone in this room today who doesn't know you. Lord, while all the, the heads are down and eyes are closed, I just want to give an invitation. Anybody in this room right now? Heads down and eyes closed. You don't have to worry about anybody else. If you have heard this message today and you want to know God's forgiveness and you want to know his son, raise your hand. Just raise your hand right now. I see that hand over there. God bless you, brother. I see that hand over there. God bless you, sister. Anybody else? If you want to know the forgiveness of Jesus, you never trusted him as your savior, today is the day. Raise that hand high. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, your great kindness and love. Thank you for the folks today who have expressed a desire to know you and to receive your forgiveness and to walk with you. Praise you, Lord, that you're moving in the midst of your people. Father, we love you, and we praise you. Thank you that you're committed to us, Lord, and that we are committed to you. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacoby's going to close us out with a song as we conclude the service.
God bless you guys. See you guys next Lord's Day. <laughs> 